the first great work-from-home experiment occurred after the bubonic plague struck London. When that plague struck, the University of Cambridge decided to send its students home. And that was when a young student by the name of Isaac Newton sat in his garden and watched an apple fall. And from there, gravity, all sorts of things have flowed in terms of theories that the world has put into application. And I think in this moment, we found similar levels of amazing innovation. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As you just heard McKinsey's global managing partner, Kevin Sneeder, observe, crises can also often create the environment for important insights and innovations. We are in just such a moment now when many of the beliefs about how companies can and should operate are being challenged, and new ideas and business models are transforming industry landscapes. On today's podcast, Kevin, who joined us a few months ago to discuss M&A, has returned for a new discussion with Celia Huber, a senior partner based in our Silicon Valley office. Today's discussion is focused on the trends that will shape the post-COVID economy. Their conversation took place during a recent CEO event we held online with the theme of growing out of the crisis. Now here's Celia. All right, Kevin, so let's start with the big question. What do you see as some of the key trends that will impact businesses in 2021 and maybe beyond? Well, thanks for the question, Celia. And I want to begin with a a caveat, which I think business forecasting exists to make astrology look good. Uh, It's always difficult, and particularly at a time like this, where there remains a very high level of uncertainty. But if I had to put a stake in the ground, I'm going to share with you, I think, in effect, eight trends that I think do shape the landscape as we look ahead. And as we look ahead, I think the first one is innovation. This has been a period of incredible innovation. It is worth pausing and thinking about that. And we can go all the way back to the 17th century to understand why. The first great work-from-home experiment occurred after the bubonic plague struck London. When that plague struck, the University of Cambridge decided to send its students home. And that was when a young student by the name of Isaac Newton sat in his garden and watched an apple fall. And from there, gravity, all sorts of things have flowed in terms of theories that the world has put into application. And I think in this moment, we found similar levels of amazing innovation. And there are some statistics now to back that thought up. One of those statistics is simply the number of new patents granted. And indeed, that is running at twice the levels that we saw in 2019 and 2020. And that is in the United States. But it's not just the United States. The levels of new business formation in Germany, Japan, and many other countries have also seen a very significant increase. Much of that, of course, is because traditional employment and opportunities have been impacted. And it really talks to the notion of necessity is often the mother of invention. But I think it also says to everyone who's participating in this conversation, what are you doing to stimulate innovation? How is innovation impacting your business? Because as we look ahead, I think we're going to see what happens in the years to come will occur because of the innovations taking place here and now. So that's the first trend I'd highlight. The second trend I'd highlight is one around consumer behavior. And one of the recent reports we published had the glory of putting together a stickiness index, a stickiness index, a very technical term. But the notion was to try and understand which of these many behaviors that we've seen are actually going to stick. Because we have seen, and we've talked to this, we've seen 10 years of digital innovation in roughly three months. We've got lots of statistics to show that, for example, e-commerce 
right across the globe has increased at rates two to five times the levels that were seen prior to the pandemic. But what this means is that I do think that consumer behaviour in several ways is going to stick. And it's going to have a profound impact in a number of sectors. The increase in e-grocery, we don't think that's going to turn back. The increase in virtual healthcare, we don't think that's going to turn back. The increased home nesting, the investment people have made in their homes, we don't think that's going to turn back. On the other hand, remote education doesn't feel so great. Live entertainment, these are the kind of things that will return. But it is important to understand there has been and there will be a fundamental shift. And that shift will be greatest in the income groups that have been most impacted, lower income groups for whom it's very hard to return to what it was before. So shifting consumer behaviours. Of course, uh, you don't need to go far to realise that there's a lot of talk about the environment, particularly in the run-up to COP26 in my hometown of Glasgow. And it's led to lots of arguments as to what type of recovery will we have? Will it be brown? Will it be green? Will it be olive, i.e. a blend of brown and green? I think the answer is, in the words of Mark Carney, 50 shades of green. It will be a green recovery. It's just the type of shade will vary depending on the starting point. But we also have to change the way we're thinking about this. On the one hand, it is an existential risk, and we should see it that way. But on the other hand, it's probably also the biggest opportunity of our lifetimes and our generation in terms of the scale and scope of the investment that is going to be delivered in order to ensure that the recovery is more green than not. The numbers are staggering. About $3.5 trillion in energy infrastructure investment every year. $3.5 trillion. Think about the uh, European Union Next Generation Recovery Plan. A 30% of that is dedicated to green investment. And so as we look at the outlook, I think the question for all of us here as business leaders is, how do we participate and shape a recovery that does have 50 shades of green? The trend that will also shape the future is the one that's been shaping our lives over the last 15 months, healthcare. Now, there will be a health revolution that's already underway. The old in-person visit to the general practitioner, the GP doctor's office, has given way to the increasing use of telehealth. That will continue. But remember, science is not standing still. The bio-revolution, the research, the amount of spending that's gone into healthcare, whilst it may get slightly dialed back, it's nevertheless a massive step change on what went before. COVID alone, $180 billion of research to get us to the vaccines and the other tools that we are now putting into application. By the way, the previous number for a healthcare crisis of the kind we had, 1.1 billion for Zika. So 180 times the level of investment. That isn't going to disappear. We're going to see sustained increases and importantly, sustained science progress, which is why the bio-revolution is so important. Much of that, of course, is funded by government, just as we've seen in this moment. We've seen government become the lender, the payer, and the owner of last resort across a whole swathe of industry. With that increased involvement of government, and we've seen stimulus packages totaling, what, $18 trillion already and rising. But with that comes increased government scrutiny, increased government involvement. And one of the trends is therefore going to be how to cope with that increased involvement. For some, the government will be a competitor, an owner, and a payer, and one that we'll all need to get used to. And either way, the scrutiny that has come in this moment is only going to increase. A sixth trend, portfolios. Portfolios are going to be restructured. But last year, the top quintile of companies gained $240 billion of economic profit. And the bottom 20%, well, they lost $400 billion. So there has been a significant shift in value. And that's also now being reflected in the way in which portfolios are shifting. You will have seen record levels, for example, of deal volume, which in the United States 
was at its highest level globally and much higher than it was in the previous year. That was in the second half of 2020, and that momentum continues. Seven, supply chains. Supply chains are shifting. Geopolitics is a part of that, Celia, but there are many other forces at work, including resilience. Just the experience we've all lived through has led to a greater emphasis and wanted to make sure that our supply chains are resilient. At that same time, let's get realistic. You can't just up and change a supply chain overnight. In fact, what we have seen in our work is that less than 25% of all supply chains could even relocate in the period of five years. But it is the case that we are seeing supply chain shifts and geopolitical pressures, and specifically the US-China relationship, will play their part in that happening. Finally, a return to air travel. Well, it might not be quite a return to the air travel we experienced before. Uh, global air traffic, as you know, has dramatically fallen, and we suspect will be 2024 before it returns to prior levels. Asia may be a little ahead of that. And business travel may be even slower, and 20% may never return. But nevertheless, revenge travel, just as we've seen revenge shopping, I think all of us are looking forward, as you said, to getting together, and it will happen. But put this all together, and I just leave you with one thought as I reflect on the trends. The pace of change will never be this slow again. The pace of change will never be this slow again. I don't think we're going to see things slow down. If anything, we're going to see an increase in the pace and the adaptation of the change that's occurring. Because in many respects, the trends I just discussed were already there. They're being accelerated, and that acceleration, I think, will continue. Well, Kevin, I am looking forward to certainly the last trend you mentioned, revenge travel, as well as some revenge shopping once I get to leave my home out here in California. I just wanted to pick up on some of the first couple of trends that you mentioned. You talked a little bit about innovation, and there's been a lot about the rise of digital. How do you see that affecting jobs and the future of work? Well, I think there's three ways in which the rise of digital will affect the future of work, and it's important to understand each of them. There is remote working, which we've all been living through. There's e-commerce, the whole shopping experience and beyond that we talked about. And then there's the business-to-business side, automation and what's happening in automation. And if we just take each of these, I think the work-from-home experiment sometimes gets discussed as if it applies to everybody. Before we go any further, let's recall that we're talking in so-called developed economies or advanced economies, roughly 25% of those in work who can do what they do three to five days a week or three days a week or more, not from the office, not from going to somewhere physically. This is the group that takes a shower before they go to work. Never forget, most people take a shower after they've been at work. And that is the challenge. There is a real risk of a growing divide between those who take the shower afterwards and those who take the shower before. As somebody said to me in an industrial company the other day, we work in the tower next to the manufacturing facility. I can't tell the people in the tower it's okay for them to go and work from there wherever they want. And at the same time, tell the manufacturing people, I expect you to now return and be in full shift all day, all week, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to be a team moment. And it's a moment when collectively it's a conscious hybrid model. It's not a default to anarchy, because I promise you that will lead to a lot more sleeping at the office and a real risk of division. But nevertheless, it's very vital and it's very true that this work from home model will have seen a very dramatic increase, four to five times the level prior to COVID. That has an impact on future work. The second one, of course, is e-commerce that we just discussed. We are going to see a continued rise in delivery, transportation, and warehouse jobs. And I think it is therefore important that we understand the implications for work of the growth of e-commerce. But we also have to understand that in the context of something we were talking about before the pandemic, the digital was very much driving, which is automation. 
Automation has been accelerated because of this pandemic. Our surveys say that roughly 70% of companies have increased their commitment to automate what they do, or at least parts of what they do. Before the pandemic, we said that two-thirds of jobs would see roughly 30% or so of the tasks that make up that job being automated. And because of that, we thought there was going to be a very significant shift in the workforce. Well, we now think that shift is at least 25% greater than we thought was the case before. But here's the issue. We believe that ultimately more jobs will be created than lost because of the forces I just described. But in the near term, we have a problem because the jobs that many thought would pick up the slack, retail, for example, being one of them, hospitality being another, have been very severely impacted and are not going to just bounce back. And the transportation, delivery, logistics jobs, I'm afraid they won't make up for the shortfall. So, for example, we estimate that in the United States, customer service and food service jobs could fall by around 4.3 million employees. We think transportation could add 800,000. In the near term, that creates an issue. And the issue all of us need to, therefore, address jointly, and I think this is a private and public sector task, is the dislocation that creates, the fact that we will see an even greater level of displacement of employment that to put it bluntly, there will be more people who are negatively impacted than positively impacted in this near term. It creates social issues, it creates real challenges, and frankly, it's part of the context for some of the disruption we're seeing around the world and some of the protests that have followed. You know, you talked about the shifting jobs, and you know that's going to have a real implication on the services economy, as you talked about in those sectors. And then we also talked about the consumer recovery and how that's playing out. Can you just maybe put those two together and talk to me about the implications for that on those trends? Just this morning, I saw a headline that retail's up 10% in the United States this month. It's a staggering number. And we're going to see that repeated in a number of places where the health recovery accompanies the economic recovery. It's very hard to disaggregate the two. The United States is now, well, it's not the world leader, but it's one of the leaders in terms of the proportion of the population that's been vaccinated, over 30% in the United States, over 30% in the United Kingdom, Israel at 60% and so on. And in those countries, we can see the economy starting to move. So I think one part of it is indeed the geographies. The second piece of this, though, is worth remembering. This is a disruption unlike any other. This disruption is not one that was caused by an economic storm, although that now is occurring. It was caused by a health storm. What that means is that for many, and in particular, frankly, higher income and older populations who had already got savings and who, frankly, are in jobs that are least or less affected, they are able to turn their spending on much more rapidly than those who are younger and in jobs that were fundamentally displaced because of the pandemic. Think retail, think hospitality, dining, and so on. That means, and this is one of the realities I think all of us really need to face into, is that the younger part of the population has indeed been harder hit and will be taking longer to get back into work and back into economic recovery. Equally, middle and high income cohorts are likely to have more money to spend. They've been saving. Look at the savings rates. They've jumped over two times what they were before in the United States, the United Kingdom, and somewhere between one and one and a half times in continental Europe. Those numbers matter. It means that we can see relatively rapid spending and other increases begin to take into reality and come into bear. But when you put it all together, I'm afraid what we see is middle and higher income, especially in so-called advanced economies, will actually recover and probably recover quite rapidly. I'm afraid the rest will not recover as quickly. They will face more uncertainty. They don't have the same level of savings to fall back on. 
And they're very dependent on how these stimulus measures play out, how long they're in place and for how long they take effect in the economy and how they actually come to stimulate consumption. So this has been a pandemic which unfortunately, left to its own course, does accentuate the inequalities that are lying either below the surface or frankly sometimes very much above the surface. So it does mean we're going to see very different patterns across the globe. Kevin, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit now from the trends to leadership, which is, of course, an essential element in, in reacting to these trends. How have you seen them change leadership skills and traits? And how have you seen CEOs change their approach to leadership during this pandemic? Well, I think CEOs and many leaders, of course, have been profoundly challenged by the pandemic. And I think there's been a sort of technical challenge and then a far greater challenge. The technical challenge is that in the pandemic, everyone has had to really focus in on two tasks, one for which you need a telescope, one for which you need a microscope. It's an old analogy, but I think it holds true. You've got to be able to scan the horizon in a pandemic and see what's coming, because there will be a tomorrow and you've got to be ready for it. Keep your eye on the nature of what's occurring, particularly as we see, for example, mergers and acquisitions picking up pace. Some of these consumer shifts becoming clear as to which ones are lasting, which ones are not. At the same time, it's been so important for leaders to really have their finger on the pulse of the organization. As somebody told me, and I think wisely, forecasts are out and dashboards are in. Forecasts are out because it's very hard to forecast what's going to happen six months from now, let alone a year. But dashboards, really being able to see what's happening in the here and now, really matter. And that's where the microscope is sort of of most use. And I think that's the technical part. The last piece, high ambition. I would simply observe that in many great dislocations, and think about the global financial crisis, we know that the companies that lead going into those crises aren't necessarily the companies that come out as leaders, partly because of the portfolio shifts I was talking about earlier, partly because big decisions got made or didn't get made, and partly because the innovation and the pace of innovation gets stimulated and increased. And that innovation can disrupt existing businesses. If you are a leader, this is a time more than ever when high ambition, high aspiration really matters. You've written quite a bit on stakeholder capitalism. So not just focusing on the immediate employees or investors, but a broader range of stakeholders. Can you expand on this a little bit and see? tell us how you see that changing right now? Well, I've been writing about it because uh, it's one of the things that I do get from Scotland. Uh, And of course, the great Adam Smith, I've shared this a few times, but I think it's worth repeating. Adam Smith in 1776 wrote his lesser work, The Wealth of Nations. But it's worth noting that uh, a number of years prior, in 1759, when he was the professor of moral philosophy at the world's leading university, the University of Glasgow, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiment. And Adam Smith, who is known as, you know, the father of the free market and the invisible hand and all that goes with it, he wrote, we should view ourselves, the person of commerce, not in the light in which our own selfish passions are apt to place us, but in the light in which any other citizen of the world would view us. And his whole treatise, his theory was about the role of commerce in the bigger economy. Messi used those words, but that's what he was writing about. And the responsibility of business leaders. So I think in many ways, it's a rediscovery of the history of capitalism to say when we talk about stakeholders and the fact that there are more than just the shareholder to be satisfied in any given period of time. I don't pretend that that's a simple thought. I mean, I recognize the arguments that people have been sharing about, doesn't this dilute focus? Doesn't it make it more difficult to deliver? Don't we 
need to respect the purity of capitalism and, and get on with it. Well, that may be true, but look at where we are. Look at the challenges we now have in our communities. For example, we have worked and uh, done a number of pieces of work looking at attitudes and behaviours towards certain choices, which you could argue have a dimension that takes you into the world of multiple stakeholders. So 50% of consumers who are disappointed with a brand stance on a social issue stop buying. They may only stop buying temporarily, but up to 17% never come back. That's a, that's a, there's a real cost to that. Improving employee productivity. We know that workers increasingly consider the social and the environmental commitments when deciding where to work. And even if it's not about finding employees, retention comes into play. And in truth, also, there is the reality that government can intervene. Government can regulate. Government can choose to make things more difficult if they feel that the business community is not listening. So I think there are a lot of very compelling, hard and soft arguments towards stepping back from the old Milton Friedman and Adage that it's all about the shareholder to really taking a broader view and to understand that really the art of leadership and the art of management is always to balance multiple choices, multiple choices for investment, multiple choices in terms of how you spend your time, but so too multiple choices in terms of looking at the way in which you think about success. And if you want to call that stakeholder capitalism, so be it. I just call it a return to what Adam Smith was writing about all those years ago. So it's it's a return to capitalism, capitalism as, as originally envisioned. So Kevin, you've talked to a lot of CEOs. Are there just one or two things that you think business leaders will take away from this past year and will sustain them into the next normal? Well, I think, at a, I think there are at, at a corporate and individual level. I think one of the things business leaders have had the opportunity to do is to connect far more directly to people. Every day, employers, colleagues, CEOs have had the chance to interact with far more people than they've ever been able to interact with before. The number of CEOs has said to me, I understand much more what's happening, not much less, because I'm now able to reach out directly to a sales team or to an operational site. You know, we've got a whole industry going in drone visits to manufacturing locations. And in any given day, you can be in four continents, no problem. Think about what that means in terms of connection. So the irony is, at a time when we feel a lot less connected because we absolutely all miss the in-person experience, we're more connected in terms of, at least from a technical point of view, what gets done and what doesn't get done. And I think some of that is going to be retained. The other part that's going to be retained, I think, is speed. Speed is a choice. It's not an outcome. It's a choice. You can choose to move quickly or not. You can choose to make decisions rapidly based on what you can gain by way of understanding and insight or not. And I think for a lot of CEOs and others, this has been a moment where they've made a choice for speed. And I suspect they're going to keep that. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find the transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our Inside the Strategy Room collection page on mckinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room. <laughs>